The sermon this morning comes from Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The couple, this couple was in their 90s and had been married for over 70 years. And the doctor was looking at their charts and realized that they had been married for over 70 years. And this doctor was amazed, couldn't believe it, and said to him, what's the secret? And uh, this couple turned and stared at one another for a while, and they really didn't have an answer. And then the husband finally piped up and said, well, I guess neither of us have died. Now, other than not dying, what is the secret to a flourishing marriage? You all have heard the stats, the statistics, over, well, at somewhere around 50% of marriages end in divorce. Uh, Today, we see a number of people that aren't even entering marriage, they're just cohabitating. Marriage is hard. Marriage is really hard. And the question is, what's the secret then to a flourishing marriage? What I want you to notice at the very start of this discussion is that all the commands that God gives here for marriage flow out of verse 18 right before this passage. When he says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And then what he describes, he starts with marriage, he gets to parenting, he gets to employee and boss. What he describes is what that looks like. In other words, when someone is filled with the Spirit, meaning dominated or controlled by the Spirit, this is what it'll look like in marriage. So at the very foundation, the secret is Spirit-filled. But now what does that look like? Men, we're gonna start with you. A spirit-filled husband. A spirit-filled husband. Well, what does a spirit-filled husband look like? 
Now, what characterizes a spirit-filled husband? You say, well, that's easy. Love your wife. Okay. Well, what does it mean to love your wife? In other words, what does it mean to love your wife? And what we're going to see in this passage is there's three very distinct characteristics of the love of a spirit-filled husband. And the first is this, a love that initiates or leads. Okay, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? Well, he waited for the church to make the 911 rescue call, right? No. No, Romans 3 says no one is good. No one seeks God. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our sins and trespasses, right? Dead people don't call for rescue, right? If you're, if you're in Christ or you have trusted Christ, it's because Jesus Christ initiated towards you and you responded, that Jesus was the initiator. And so what we learn here is that husbands are to be the initiators, the ones who take the initiation or the lead with their wives. That's what we learn in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Headship or leadership, initiative. God gave you the strength to lead in this way. In fact, he actually designed you as a man to lead in your marriage this way. But what we find is that that strength that God gives men gets warped in Genesis 3, the fall, when sin enters the world. And man's strength gets warped into one of two directions that's not as God designed it to be used. On the one hand, men can become passive and abandon the strength that God gave them. We see it in the garden. Adam watched as his wife Eve got assaulted by Satan in the garden and said nothing, right? Passivity. That's the one warp of strength. The other is men can become domineering or abusive with their strength. And we see this play out in the chapters right after Genesis 3 as the world begins to unfold, that domineering or abusive use of strength in marriage. And so if those are the two ways that you can fall off the rails as a husband, passivity or domineering and abusive strength, what is the strength that God has given you and how should you use it to initiate and lead in your marriage? I'm gonna give you three examples here or three ways that I think are important. They're not exhaustive, but I think they're, I think they're primary. Right, number one, first, you're called to lead or initiate romantically. I did a, a wedding. This was years ago in Charlotte, North Carolina. I officiated a wedding. It was of my best friend. And I'll never forget the last vow that he repeated to his soon-to-be wife. He said, and I will never stop pursuing you. You know, pursuit doesn't end at the altar with the vows. And yet you and I know what can happen in a marriage very quickly, that the pursuit can end, that date nights start to wane and go to maybe nothing. Uh, and even if we give, uh, give husbands the benefit of the doubt and maybe you're still planning a date night with some degree of regularity, 
Sometimes the Friday night rolls around and the babysitter comes over and you get in the car and it's, where do you want to go eat tonight? That there's a failure of leadership there to pursue, uh, to initiate, to lead romantically, that a, a woman needs to be pursued. And so what happens is a woman's need to be pursued turns into the woman planning date night. If my husband's not going to do it, I'm going to do it because I need it. And so we see that, husbands, you're called to initiate, to lead romantically, to pursue your wife. You were designed for that. And she's designed to be the receiver of pursuit. That's the first way. Second, husbands are called to lead or initiate in repentance. I'll describe the situation. I'm sure it never happens in a room like this, but you get in a fight. Okay? You get in an argument. And you know, if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a good one, a heavy one, what happens? You get in the argument, you get in the fight, and then you retreat to the four corners of the house. Silence descends on the marriage. That, that utter silence. And then here's what goes, I'll just speak to men here, husbands, that's who we're on. Here's what goes through your mind, men. I can't believe she did that. I can't believe she just said that. She is being completely irrational. And I am not going to say anything until she comes and apologizes for what she did. That's a failure in leadership. Men, you're called to lead and to initiate with repentance. Here's why that happens, right? This is the human heart tendency. Uh, my wife, is nine, she committed 95% of the sin. I may have 5%, she has 95%. In any fight, in any conflict, it's somewhere around 50-50, always. And so husbands, your, your, your responsibility is to say, Lord, where am I wrong? What did I do? How have I sinned against her? And then you make the first move back to her to break the silence. That's leadership. That's initiating in repentance. And then to actually confess the wrong of yours, not to get her to confess back. That's manipulative. To actually confess your wrong and your sin, period. That that is leading in repentance. The third way, husbands are called to lead spiritually or to initiate spiritually. Now, this one gets tricky. I'll give you a scenario here. The wife maybe was raised in a strong Christian home was raised hearing the Bible stories, taught the Bible, knows it really well, ends, ends up marrying a man who maybe is newer in Christ, was raised in a family that never cracked the Bible, didn't grow up with the Bible stories. And so you have a marriage where the wife knows more of the Bible, knows more of the scriptures. And what tends to happen is then the husband feels absolutely incompetent to lead spiritually. Why? Because in that, in that moment, we equate spiritual leadership to head knowledge. That is not spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is taking the lead and the responsibility for the spiritual well-being of your marriage and your family. What that means is that, husbands, you take the initiative, you lead in the conversations, if you have children, about how you're gonna raise your children in Christ. You take the lead. If your wife is a gifted teacher and she's amazing with the scriptures and she does an amazing job teaching children, 
then you take the lead of leveraging her gift with the children. Uh, Leading spiritually means that you take the lead in, in initiating the conversation about spiritual health. Your own, hers, in the marriage. That you're asking the questions of your wife, how are you doing? How's your heart? What are you struggling with? What are you anxious about? Right, that's, that's spiritual leadership. And husbands are called to that. So the first characteristic of the love of a spirit-filled husband is a love that initiates, a love that leads. Second is a love that serves. Back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus died for the church. Why? Because Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves you. Jesus saved you. Jesus rescued you. Jesus restored you into a relationship with the God who made you. And his love was costly to do this. It cost Jesus dearly to love you. He had to give himself up. He had to die. He had to lay down his life so that you could have everything. He had to empty himself so that you could be filled. And so Paul says, in the same way, husbands, you're called to serve your wives, to give yourself up for your wife, to lay yourself down for your wife. Richard Seltzer in his book, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery, describes uh, this scene from the operating room. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. You see, spirit-filled husbands twist. They twist their lives for the sake of their, uh, of their wives. You say, why? Well, there's a deep truth that's embedded in verses 28 to 31 that I think we oftentimes miss that really is getting at the power 
or, or what empowers you to twist your life, so to speak, to accommodate your wife, to bend towards her, to sacrifice. And it's verse 31. It's taken from the original design for marriage in Genesis chapter 2. The two shall become one flesh. You and your wife are one. Therefore, verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. You see, it's not somebody else. It's not somebody you coexist with. It is one flesh. And just like you nourish and cherish your own body, you nourish and cherish your wife because you're one. What does that mean? When your wife is sick, you're sick. When your wife is, is sad, you're sad. When your wife is struggling with anxiety, you're struggling with anxiety. You see this oneness where you enter in, you twist and enter in and empathize with what she is going through, what she's experiencing, so that in that, in that place you can nourish, nourish and cherish, that you can, you can sacrifice. I'm convinced, and, and, and let me tell you, I'm the chief of sinners here, that many men enter marriage as a consumer not realizing they enter marriage as a covenant. And I can tell you that I did that early in our marriage. And what that consumer mindset produces is this. Men who have their, their patterns of life and their hobbies, and, and marriage almost becomes like the icing on the cake. It's like the veneer that gets added to life so that a man enters marriage and doesn't functionally change anything he does except gets that little icing on the cake to meet needs. Marriage is a covenant. That husbands, we're, we're called to die to ourselves, to lay our lives down for the good of our wives. That that's what we're called to. That when you marry, you die to self. See, spirit-filled husbands twist their lives for the good of their wives, the good of their brides. Say, what is that good? Well, that leads us to the third characteristic of the love of a spirit-filled husband, and that is a love that purposes, a love that purposes. You say, why, why do I initiate? Why do I lead? Why do I serve? Why do I sacrifice? What's the end goal? And verses 26 and 27 lay it out. It says that Jesus gave himself up for the church. Why? To sanctify her, to wash her, to cleanse her, that she might be holy and stand blameless and be a beautiful bride. That that was Jesus' purpose for laying his life down, that you would be beautiful. And so what we learn from that of what the call is on husbands is that husbands should be utterly committed, utterly committed to the spiritual well-being of their wives. That's, that's the principle here of what husbands are called to, that love purposes, and the purpose is this commitment to the spiritual well-being of their wives. I, I'm gonna give you a quote from Tim Keller's book, Meaning of Marriage. If you've been to a wedding I've done, or maybe if I've married you, you, you probably have heard this quote. 
It's beautiful. He says, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me, exclamation point. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. Here are some questions, husbands, that you need to be asking. How is my wife gifted? What are her gifts? How has God created her unique? And then the next question is, what are the barriers, whether it be sin or schedule or margins, that keep her from blossoming in that gift? And then how can I be used to help her blossom in that gift for the sake of God's kingdom? And that gets down to very practicals of maybe I watch the kids one night or I come home from work a little bit early to watch the kids so that my wife can be released to use this gift or to see it blossom or flourish. Or maybe I save some money up and send her to a conference. Or I save some money up so I can purchase a video series that will help her in this area. Or I buy a book or that can help her develop and blossom and bloom. That husbands, you're called to see your wife as a rose or as a rose bush, and the question becomes, how do I prune and trim and fertilize and water to see it blossom? Recognizing that the Spirit does all that work, but that I'm a vehicle for that. So what is the secret to a flourishing marriage? First, a Spirit-filled husband. Second, a Spirit-filled wife. Now, we get to a very difficult part of Scripture. Uh, in fact, when I read verse 22, uh, some of you may have cringed internally. Uh, some of you may have cringed externally because that word submission came up. And you wish that I were out of time right now. What does it mean? Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What is submission? Let me start by defining what it's not. Because we get to some pretty crazy places with this, okay? Here's what submission is not. When God says, wives, submit to your husbands, he is not saying that you are of lesser dignity or lesser value than your husband. Men and women, husbands and wives, are created in the image of God and therefore of equal dignity, of equal value. The Trinity is actually a helpful picture to see this. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each of those persons are equally God, equal honor, equal glory. And when Jesus takes on a submissive role and puts on flesh and becomes a human, None of that changes. When Jesus was a man walking the earth, he was not of 
for that period of time, lesser glory or cease to be God. Jesus was still equally God, but he took on a submissive role for a greater purpose to accomplish salvation. And that's what's happening here. When God says, wives, I want you to submit to your husband, he's not saying you're lesser. He's saying, oh, no, no, you're of equal dignity and value, but I'm asking you to take on a role for the purpose of something bigger, and that is to display the beauty of Christ to a lost world. It's actually, and that's why we read verse 21 as part of this passage, it's actually mutual submission. Do you note that? Verse 21, submitting to one another. In marriage, there is actually a mutual submission. It just looks different. The husband's submission takes on the form of initiating and laying their life down. The wife's submission takes on the form of following her husband's leadership. And so submission, wives, what you're called to there is to trust your husband, to follow his leadership. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, just as men are given strength to lead, wives are given strength to follow. And just as the men's strength was warped in Genesis 3, the women's, woman's strength was warped in Genesis 3 as well. A willingness to follow Adam, a willingness to follow turned into a desire to control and manipulate. That's what we read in Genesis 3. And so control and manipulation is about just the very opposite of what Paul is calling for in verse 33 when he says, wives, see that you respect your husbands. Submission is respect. It takes the form of respect. What's that mean? Well, one, wives, you need to recognize that one of your husband's primary needs is respect. And that means uh, don't shame him in public. If you get into a disagreement in public or he does something you disagree with or maybe he disciplines the children in a way you disagree with or he doesn't discipline your children, and he should, that you don't call that out in public that when you get home in the privacy of your home, you discuss that. It means that you, you honor your husband, uh, that you, you tell him how proud you are of him for what he does to meet the needs of the family. One author describes it this way. A man wants to be held in esteem and to be shown consideration and appreciation, even when he makes mistakes. He needs someone to believe in him when the odds are stacked against him. And so the call on you, wives, is to make your home the one place where the voices of criticism are silenced and not amplified. That that is respect. That that is following your husband's lead. Uh, E.V. Hill was an African-American pastor in Los Angeles, California. And uh, he delivered the sermon at his wife's funeral. I can't imagine how he did, but he delivered a sermon in his wife's funeral. His wife was from a background of, of wealth. She grew up in a, in a home where there was plenty of, of money and resources, and so she never really went without. Um, then she married a preacher. Things changed quickly. And uh, Evie Hill, in this sermon at his wife's funeral, uh, describes a story. 
from their life. Uh, he said he, he was coming home from work one day and he walked into the house and there were candles everywhere. There was a candle on the dinner table for a candlelight dinner. There, were, there was a candle in the kitchen. There was a candle in the bedroom. There was a candle in the bathroom. So he goes into the bathroom to wash up before dinner and he goes to flip the light switch on and the lights don't turn on. So he goes back out and he says to his wife, sweetheart, we don't have power, do we? And she said, no. And she started to cry and she said, but, but sweetheart, honey, you work so hard. You're so dedicated to this family, but, but we don't have enough money. I couldn't pay the power bill. And they shut our power off. And then, you know, Evie Hill is at this point in the sermon crying. And he says, in that moment, my wife could have crushed me. She could have ruined me. She could have said, listen, I grew up with men who provided for me. I grew up where we always had power. I was never in the dark and I was never cold because there was no power, but she didn't. He said, she could have ruined me. And instead, she said, let's eat by candlelight. She believed in him. She supported him. Wives, the call here is to gather all of your gifts and all the strength that God has given you to contend for your husband's strength as a leader. That leadership is hard. And the call to you in submission is to actually Gather everything you have in the strength of the Spirit to contend for the strength of your leader, your husband. That's submission. That's respect. Now, I imagine that at this point in the sermon, there are a number of you that are thinking this. I have submitted to my husband. I have followed him. I have respected him. I have encouraged him. And he still is aloof and removed and doesn't pursue me. And there are some of you thinking, I have loved my wife. I have initiated. I have taken the lead. I have served her. I have sacrificed for her. And she still nags me and disrespects me. And you say, Keith, it doesn't work. And I would say back to you, Tell me where in this passage God calls you to do what you're called to do so that your spouse responds. It's not there. This is an unconditional call. Unconditional. Wives, you're called to submit to your husband not to get him to love you. You're called to submit to your husband because you submit to Jesus Christ. Uh, husbands, you're not called to love your wives so that she respects you. You're called to love your wife because you love Jesus Christ, the perfect bridegroom. And that is actually what is all over this passage that is the pink elephant in this passage. In fact, Paul spells it out in verse 32 when he talks about the mystery. The mystery is the intersection of your horizontal marriage and your vertical marriage to Christ. 
that Jesus Christ is the perfect bridegroom and that when your vertical marriage to Christ is flourishing, that that's the power for your horizontal marriage to flourish at least for you to love your wife or to submit to your husband, to live out these commands that God gives. The love that will cause your marriage to flourish is not a love that comes from you or your spouse. It's a love that comes from Jesus Christ, the perfect bridegroom. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you don't have. You receive from the perfect bridegroom love that then you turn and give to your spouse unconditionally. And then God does the work in your spouse's heart and your spouse's life to change your spouse and to change you. And as I started in prayer, let me remind you, because there's a number of people here that are single and not married, this vertical marriage is available to everyone. And it is the key to a horizontal marriage flourishing, but it is the key to you flourishing with Christ now so that when you get married, that vertical marriage is flourishing, which will then allow you to enter into marriage as a covenant, not as a consumer. Be married to Christ. He died for you. He went to the cross for you so that he could clean you up and make you beautiful. This is Ezekiel 16 language all over Ephesians 5 that he could take you as his bride and clean you up and make you beautiful, that when he returns, that he would make you spotless and blameless and beautiful before the one that created you. Let's pray. Father, marriage is hard. And there are marriages in this room today that are struggling mightily. And we pray, Father, just boldly pray that you would do the work of renewal by your spirit. As we recognized early on, this business of marriage at the foundation is being spirit-filled and you promise upon trusting Christ to give us your spirit that we could be dominated and controlled by your spirit that produces all of the behaviors that we see prescribed here. That husbands would give themselves up, that wives would follow the lead of their husband. So would you fill us with your spirit? That our vertical marriage would would thrive with you, Jesus. That we would be filled with joy because you've rescued us, that you gave yourself up for us to clean us up and make us beautiful. And that's where we wanna end this service, not on horizontal marriage, but on our marriage to you and our worship of you And out of that, we do pray for a mighty renewal of the marriages in this body. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.